Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We have used 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 as a launch pad to discuss the hope that is in the Christian and by contrast, the anxiety and depression that plagues so many in both body and soul. And having looked at 12 traps that we ought to avoid with regard to anxiety and depression in the body and the soul, we're going to begin to look at remedies, remedies for these, these plagues that seem to cling to us wherever we go. And so far, I've outlined six remedies, but this sermon focuses on just one of those six, and that would be the remedy of promise, the remedy of promise. So what I want to do is, by way of introduction, talk about promise and hope, and then we'll have three concluding observations or points later on in the sermon. So a bit of a longer introduction, and then three points coming up later By way of introduction, I want to uh, remind you of something that was that the second trap, which I said that we need to avoid when it comes to anxiety and depression, is unused means. Unused means. In particular, I was talking about the body. Anxiety and depression afflict us in both body and soul, and there are means that can be used to address both of those, the anxiety and depression of the body and the anxiety and the depression of the soul. The body in particular can sometimes be benefited or helped by psychiatric medicine. And I know people who have been very much helped by this. Of course, those things have to be used carefully. There's other people whose testimony would be, these medicines did not help me, they made things worse. And so for many, they are very helpful For others, not always, and you need to look into that for yourself. So why do I bring this up again? I bring it up to say I'm not going to be talking about that as one of the remedies because we already mentioned it in a previous sermon. And also, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't really tell you how exactly to treat your body in terms of anxiety and depression. But rather, setting that aside as important and useful we're going to look at God's remedies for his people as prescribed in his word and preached by his ministers. Now, also by way of introduction, we need to define hope. We need to define hope. So I'll give you a general idea of it and then a particular definition. In general, we use the language of hope to express our feelings about something in the future. We use the language of hope to express our feelings about something in the future, something ahead of us. But because we don't know the future, we tend to use the language of hope in a way that clearly indicates uncertainty, uncertainty about the future. We don't know what today will hold. And because we cannot predict the future with any certainty or cause any one particular future to become reality, even when we try very hard, because of that, we tend to speak of hope with clear indications of uncertainty. For example, I hope the Red Sox win the World Series. I hope the Boston Bruins win the Stanley Cup. 
I hope that retirement investments do well. I hope that this medicine will help me. I hope that the kids did their chores. All of those express a great deal of uncertainty. I hope that my child's homework is done. You're saying, I have no idea if their homework is done. When you say, I hope the Dodgers win the World Series, you're saying, it's very unlikely, but I hope so. If you say, I hope the, the fellowship meal is Italian every month, you can hope for that, but... <laughs> In each of these expressions, we use the word hope, but we're clearly indicating uncertainty. I don't know. I don't know who will win this sporting event. I don't know how the stock market will do. I don't know if this medicine will help me. I don't know if my kids did their chores. I don't know what the next fellowship meal theme will be. I don't know a lot of things. But I use the language of hope in relation to my feelings about those future possibilities. Now, other languages, and, and our own, because hope looks to the future, often combine two concepts in the same language, or in the same vocabulary, and those two concepts are waiting and hoping. Waiting and hoping often go hand in hand because you wait for something in the future, and so hope is hoping that the thing you're waiting for will come to pass. If we're waiting for something that we hope will come to pass, but we don't know, then that means that hope in general is uncertain waiting. Hope, in general, is uncertain waiting or waiting with uncertainty. Now, what does waiting with uncertainty sound like to you? <laughs> waiting with uncertainty sounds to me like, hey, that's the definition of anxiety, right? <laughs> waiting for something with uncertainty, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not sure. I hope so. That, that sounds like anxiety to me. So there's an irony here that the language of hope and waiting, as we generally and commonly use it, is actually expressing a degree of anxiety. I hope so, I hope so, but I really don't know so, and I'm waiting to see and find out, is expressing not just uncertainty, but oftentimes anxiety as we wait for we don't know what. Now, the good news of this sermon is that the scriptures give us a much better hope than that. The word of God uses the language of hoping, and it even parallels the language of hoping with waiting, such as Psalm 130, verse 5. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. So hoping and waiting do certainly go together. But the word of God gives us something far better than waiting with uncertainty or uncertain waiting. So what is Christian hope, therefore? What is hope in particular? What does the word of God give to us with relation to hope? Because the apostle Peter says that there is a hope in the Christian. Does, does that mean Christians wait with uncertainty for they don't know what? No, what is Christian hope? Here's your definition. Hope is confident expectation. Hope is confident expectation. We could say it in different terms. We could say it is patient confidence or confident patience. And the word patience there is getting at the waiting element. Waiting with expectation. Waiting with confidence. Waiting with patience. Hope 
looks to the future. And Christian hope looks to an absolutely certain future that is coming. So for us, for the Christian, hope is not waiting with uncertainty, but waiting with certainty or confident expectation. And what does confident expectation sound like to you? It sounds like the opposite of anxiety. Confident expectation, patient confidence, confident patience. So how can we possess and enjoy Christian hope? Well, this is where the remedy of promise comes into view, but we still haven't arrived at those three points coming later. We're introducing, we're, we're getting closer and closer, talking about hope in general, hope in particular, and that promise is a remedy for the anxious and depressed heart to help us to possess and enjoy hope. I'd, I'd like you to turn with me, please, to Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs chapter 13. And look at verse 12. Proverbs 13, verse 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. When you hope for something in the future, but it's uncertain, and it's not appearing, it's not materializing, it's not coming, it's not arriving, it's deferred, it's put off, it's delayed, it's out of reach, it's beyond grasp. When that happens again and again and again, what happens? Your hope dwindles, and it's replaced by despair, a sick heart that is depressed depression many times, anxiety many times, these things come from a hope deferred, a desire for something that's unfulfilled, a hope for something that is permanently deferred, always beyond you, never in your reach. And the Proverbs remind us that when our hope is set on something that is deferred and deferred or uncertain and uncertain, and it's not materialized and it's not coming our way, it causes sickness in the heart. It causes depression or despair, hopelessness. How do we overcome hopelessness and despair and a sick heart? Well, we need to set our eyes on the promise of something certainly coming in the future. How do those who live in northern countries endure the darkness of winter? They make heavy metal music. They also hope for spring. They hope for spring. Because they know that spring is coming. They know the snow will melt. They know that the sun will rise. They know that the darkness of winter will not last forever. Can you imagine an endless winter? As much as I love winter, and believe me, I love winter, an endless winter would be misery. It would be truly torment. If spring were delayed over and over and over again, one's joy would diminish and diminish and diminish because hope deferred makes the heart sick. I'm waiting for the longer days of sunlight. 
I'm waiting for the darkness to diminish. I'm waiting for the plants to grow again. I'm waiting for, for leaves and flowers and bees and birds and all kinds of things. I'm waiting for life. And if winter persists and spring is deferred forever and ever, then the Nords would most certainly, those people who live in the northern countries, they would, they would fall into despair. Well, that's, of course, an illustration of a reality that afflicts us on a larger level throughout the world. That, as the proverb says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Spring is more enjoyable because it was hoped for during winter. Summer is more enjoyable because it was hoped for during spring. Fall is more enjoyable because it was hoped for during summer. And winter is more enjoyable because it was hoped for during fall. Now consider Christian hope again. If hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life, for what do we hope? Or in what do we hope? We need to think about the fact that in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, Peter says that there's a hope in the Christian, the hope that is in you, but he doesn't define it. He doesn't go into detail about what that hope is. So what is the hope that is in the Christian? The reason that Peter does not define hope in 1 Peter 3.15 is because he already told us what it is in chapter 1. We need to go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The source and center, the foundation and fount of Christian hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord, from the dead. But how can that be? That doesn't make sense. Since hope looks forward, but the death and resurrection of Christ points us backward, how can hope be in something from the past? Well, what is the result of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It is life. It is life everlasting. It is immortality and incorruptibility. Jesus rose from the dead with a new human nature, an indestructible, unfading, glorious humanity in which he lives forever in our flesh. And so what does that mean for us, for the Christian, for the believer? It means that the power of Jesus' resurrected life is flowing through the means of grace in his church, such as the preaching of the gospel and that power of the res resurrection that flows through the preaching of the gospel gives new life, regeneration to his sheep. The resurrection causes us to be born again. The resurrection power that flows through the preaching of the gospel. 
And that power of Jesus' indestructible life that impacts us to cause us to be born again through the preaching, it doesn't stop there with regeneration. It continues to flow through all the means of grace, the reading of the word, the singing of God's praises, praying according to his will, the Lord's Supper and baptism. All of these things continue to influence us and to communicate to us, to deliver to us the power of the resurrection so that those who have been born again unto a living hope are then built up and strengthened and fortified and enlivened and more and more vivified by the power of the resurrection. And so there is the resurrection in the past that we look to and say it is our hope, though it is in the past, because it impacts us in the present and is, it is at work in us. Peter calls it a living hope. Jesus is alive, and we are alive by his power. And of course, there's more than this, because what does Peter say in the next verses? We've been born again unto a living hope. A hope of what? Verses 4 and 5 in 1 Peter 1. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter tells us there is a future glory, an inheritance reserved for us, and we are guarded for it. So Jesus, by his resurrection, inaugurates, he he begins, he initiates, and he opens a new age of everlasting life and glory. And he enters into it And we have that hope that we too shall enter into the same glorious, resurrected, eternal life because he has promised it to us. He has promised us before he died, he told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He promised, I will send my comforter to be with you. He promised, I will always be with you you unto the end of the age. He promised, and I will return for you that you may be where I am. He promised that we also would enjoy that resurrected life. The one who believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live, Jesus promised. So what is the promise? What is the hope that we have in us? It is this, that as is he, so will I be. As is he, so will I be. What is my hope? What is your hope, Christian? Is it the promise of the gospel? Is it the glory won by Jesus Christ? Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And for the one who hopes in eternal life and hopes in resurrection, their desire fulfilled will be a tree of life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and all the glory that comes with it is therefore the source and the center of our hope. The promise, the promise, as is he, so will I be. I hope for the fulfillment of that promise because it will certainly and immutably be fulfilled. But with that introduction that moves us from hope into promise and a specific promise that constitutes the hope of the Christian, I want to spend the rest of the sermon 
on three important points about hope and promise. Number one, hope must be practiced and matured. Hope must be practiced and matured. Hope is something that we exercise. You need to think of hope as something that you do, something that you practice. And just as we grow in faith and we mature in faith, so also we ought to grow and mature in hope. Would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 5? You need to have a mindset, I need to grow in hope. I need to practice, I need to put into practice, I need to exercise hope as a Christian virtue. Let's look at Romans 5, 1 through 5. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The glory of God is ahead of us in which we will enter. We know that because we have been justified and we rejoice in that hope that is ahead of us of the glory of God. Now, Paul's then going to tell us how this hope is developed and cultivated in the Christian because we're not yet at the glory of God. We have not yet entered into our inheritance. Verses 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We tend to want easy fixes for solution or for problems. We want convenience and uh, we want everything to be fast. But we all know that quality and uh, rapidness or speed do not correlate. The longer you spend on something, the better the quality will be. The less time you spend on something, the worse the quality will be. If your if your mom makes Thanksgiving dinner or if your wife makes Thanksgiving dinner, it takes a lot of work and it's amazing. If you go to McDonald's or Taco Bell, etc., 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 you know it's not going to be amazing because how long did it take them to make that food? Well, they didn't even make it. They just heated it up. There's a correlation between speed and quality. We want quick fixes. And so when it comes to hope, if you just want a quick hope, it's not going to be a very strong hope. It's not going to be a mature hope. It's not going to be a fortified hope. Where does hope come from? Ask Paul. Paul says there's a chain of events, there's a production process that produces hope. First, you must suffer. And then you must endure in suffering. And then you must develop character that comes from enduring suffering. And one of those virtues that will come in your character, that is the, the production, the product of enduring suffering, is a hope that does not put us to shame. But if you skip the process, if you want to skip the suffering, skip the endurance, skip the character, go straight to hope, 
What kind of hope will you have? One that is easily defeated, one that is easily lost in a sense. So Christians who have suffered and who have endured suffering and who have been matured by their suffering into character, these Christians will exercise hope, having matured into hope, a hope that does not put us to shame. And something, the language of the scriptures of not putting us to shame means you were right to have trusted in it. You were validated. You're validated for having trusted in that thing. It did not put you to shame. Think of it like this. A new Christian is excited about living the Christian life, and they feel joy and excitement and commitment as a new believer. But then suffering comes their way. What happens when their health fails? When their church splits? When their family or their co-workers ridicule them for being a Christian? Or their country and their culture more and more exchange the truth for the lie and oppress what is right and protect what is evil? What happens then to the new Christian? When life becomes more difficult and suffering gets turned up and up and up, does that new Christian need to hope for future glory? Absolutely, yes. But it will be through these trials that their hope for future glory will be grown and matured as they are weaned more and more from this world. You see, we have to hope less and less for things in this life so that we can hope more and more for what is in the next life. And the only way that that's going to happen is through suffering and endurance and character. Because we think, well, I'll hope for both of them. I'll hope for both of them. But God weans us more and more from hoping for things in this life. So that eventually we say, with food and clothing, I will be content. God, give me this day my daily bread. And we hope for an inexpressible glory in the next life. The longer we live for Christ the more we love him and the more we long to be with him. The longer we suffer for Christ, the more we want to enter into the glory that he has prepared for us. The greater our suffering, the greater we long for glory. And so therefore, the greater the suffering, the greater the hope ought to be. But that's only if you understand hope to be something that you must practice, something that you must exercise, something that you must very intentionally hope and do. And when you have done this, you make yourself a ripe fruit. Hope in God's promises grows and grows such that the elderly or experienced Christian should be a ripe fruit of hope for God to pick and bring home. The elderly Christian who has lived many years in the Lord, they should have the greatest hope because they are the closest to glory and they have been weaned the most from the things of this life and the joys of this world. They should be the ripest fruit because they have matured their hope. They have practiced hope. They have exercised hope. They can, they can taste it. They can see the hope. It's just beyond the river for them in a way that simply won't be true for the new Christian. Now, does the new Christian and the experienced Christian have the same objective hope, the same glory beyond? Yes, absolutely. But you see, the experienced Christian has a mature hope because they've practiced it and they've grown in it as suffering and endurance and character produce a true Christian hope. But you may not think of hope as something you need to exercise. You just think of hope as what's beyond you, ahead of you. 
Well, yes, objectively, but subjectively, you must practice hope. The aged believer is like a fruit tree where the trunk and the branches are old and gnarled and perhaps drooping, but covered in leaves and fruit in a way that defies understanding. This tree is old and gnarled and drooping, but it has leaves and fruit everywhere. That's what the the old Christian should be like because there is inwardly a sap, a vitality, a life, a resurrection life, an eternal life, a heavenly glory that is already at work in them. They have a living hope. And so their hope that blooms and blossoms and produces fruit is ripe for the picking. So therefore we must learn to develop hope, to mature hope, to cultivate hope, to exercise it. I must endure suffering and hope for future glory. This is how I cultivate hope. This is how I overcome as a remedy the despair that plagues me. I have endured suffering. I have persevered unto character, in particular, hope. What is it we are waiting for and longing for? Paul says in Titus chapter 2, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if hope rests in the certainty of future promises or the certain fulfillment certain future fulfillment of promises, we set our hearts, we set our hope on what God has promised to do, and then we, we cling to that, we stick to it. I believe that he is true and faithful, and I hope for what he has promised, and I exercise hope, I, I practice hope. If we're honest, we probably don't think of hope in that way as something I need to exercise. This is necessary. Secondly, promises cannot be lost. In other sermons, I've tried to be, I always try to be careful in my words, but in other sermons, I've tried to be careful about speaking about one thing in particular. I've said various times that anxiety and depression often take away our enjoyment or experience of hope. What I want us to realize and remember is that for the Christian, you have the hope of promise at all times, in all situations, every day, for all your days. Every Christian has the hope of promise every day, all day, for all days. A hope that is fixed on God's promises is a confident expectation that Jesus will do all that he has promised to do because he has already prevailed and already triumphed over death and already initiated a new age of glorious everlasting life into which we too shall enter. But you see, we will lose the enjoyment of that hope when we lose sight of or memory of the promise of that hope. And I want to tell you that you have this hope even when you forget it. Does this remind you of a story? Do you remember Pilgrim's Progress? 
Good, I'm glad you remember it. One of the parts in Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read it or not, is when Pilgrim and his friend Hopeful, they're going on their way to the celestial city, and they see a bypath. It's not the main road, it's a path that is by the road. It's a bypath, and they go into Bypath Meadow. Oh, this is right next to the road. What a nice meadow. Let's go off the road into Bypath Meadow, and they fall asleep. And while they're sleeping, they're captured and imprisoned by giant despair in Doubting Castle. So they're in chains. Christian and Hopeful are chained in a prison in Doubting Castle, kept by giant despair. And it says that giant despair would go in with, it says, a grievous crabtree cudgel. A cudgel is a a beating stick. It's made from crabtree bark, which tends to be very gnarled and knobby. So you don't want to be hit by a grievous crabtree cudgel. But that's what giant despair would take into the prison in Doubting Castle and just beat on Christian and hopeful. And they were, they were helpless and hopeless. They were despairing in ca- doubting castle. You hear doubting castle and giant despair. So you have a doubting Christian being beaten by despair, hopelessness, and they didn't know how to get out. They're chained. They're in a prison in a castle with a giant. What can they possibly do to escape this seemingly inescapable predicament? Well, Christian comes to a realization, doesn't he? He says, What a fool am I, thus to lie in a stinking dungeon, when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom, in my heart. I have a key called promise that will open any lock in Doubting Castle. Christian remembers, What a fool I have been. I have a key called promise. And the key of promise opens the locks of Doubting Castle to escape from giant despair. And we ought to come to the same realization that we may lose the memory of promise or the enjoyment of promise, but the Christian cannot actually lose the key of promise because they are God's promises given to the Christian. And we too can escape doubt and depression in the soul when we set our hopes on the promises of God, which are yea and amen in Christ Jesus, because they are promises that will not fail, promises that will not be deferred, promises which do not put us to shame for having believed in them, but rather they fulfill our desires like a tree of life. So as Christians, oftentimes we find ourselves in doubt and depression or despair, hopelessness. And we need to remember, promises cannot be lost. I may lose the enjoyment of it or the sight of it or the memory of it, but promises cannot be lost. No matter how much I suffer in body, nevertheless, I know that God's promises are sure and certain for me. No one can take away this promise from me. Giant despair could not take that key from Christian. It was impossible. If we were captured by the most hostile government in the world that would gladly cut off the heads of Christians because they're Christians, it doesn't matter what they do to our bodies, they could never persecute the promises out of our souls. Promises cannot be lost. Therefore, hope cannot be lost. I have no hope. I have no hope. I have no hope. Such a Christian needs to remember, you have the promise 
You have the promise. Believe the promise and hope for its fulfillment. Believe the promise and hope for its fulfillment. The key of promise opens the locks of Doubting Castle and escapes from giant despair. But again, this is something we must practice, something we must exercise. Sometimes Christians are in despair and depression, and they want it to just go away. That's an understandable desire. But we need to realize so long as you just lie in the chains, it's not going to go away. You need to say, I believe the promises and I hope for the fulfillment of those promises and I'm going to keep hoping and keep hoping. And when you do that, what happens? You're enduring suffering, producing character, producing hope. But if you say, no, just make it all go away, just make it all go away, and it doesn't all go away, then you're hoping for something God never promised, that hope deferred makes your heart sick, and you stay in that despair. We must practice hope. I can't, Pastor, I have no hope. You can't lose it. You can't lose it. It's right here. It's in your heart, in your bosom, to use that old language from John Bunyan. Promises cannot be lost. So hope cannot be lost. We can lose our sight and memory and enjoyment of promises and hope, but they are not lost. Praise the Lord. Praise God. Thirdly and lastly, covenants confirm promises. Covenants confirm promises promises. So far in the sermon, we've been developing the truth that our hope is directed to God's promises because they will certainly be fulfilled. What God has promised, he will do. Has he said it? And will he not do it? The scriptures say. And there is a hope in us because Jesus has risen from the dead and the power of his resurrection is already at work in us and will be completed in us. God has promised this And as we have faith that those promises are true, so we have hope for their fulfillment. We wait with confident expectation. But did you know that for some people, promise isn't enough? They want more than promise. I want more than your promise, God. Who would dare to ask God for more than a promise? And would God actually grant that request? That's, that's two questions. Who would actually ask for more than a promise? And would God actually grant their request? Answer to question one, who would do this? Abraham. Did God actually grant his request? Absolutely he did, because he is merciful and gracious and loving. Turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11 and following. The apostle says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Wait a second. Verse 11 
we can have full assurance of hope until the end? How? How? The apostle wants Christians to have full assurance of hope until the end. How? Well, the apostle is going to give an example of ways in which God gives us full assurance of hope for those who wait patiently to inherit the promises. Verses 13 and following. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. So we have a historical example. God made a promise to Abraham, and then God swore an oath to Abraham, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. So let me just remind you of what this is describing. In Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and they will inherit the land of Canaan, and a blessing will come from you for all the nations. Fast forward a few years and a few chapters to Genesis 15, Abraham has no offspring. And he he asks God, how will I know? How will this be? So he has the promise already. God has promised him, you will have many descendants, they will inherit the land of Canaan. Genesis 15, Abraham says, can you give me more than the promise? And that's when God confirms the promise with an oath. In other words, he makes a covenant for the sake of Abraham. So let's come back to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 16 and following. Why do people add oaths to promises? Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. Oaths confirm promises. Verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Why did God go through the trouble, take the time to have a covenant-making ceremony and add an oath to the promise he had already given to Abraham? He could have said, Abraham, I've promised you. You're doubting me. What more could you want? But rather, it says that God desired to show more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose. And to do this, he guaranteed his promise with an oath. God made a covenant with Abraham. God passed in theophany. He passed through the animal parts and said, Know for certain that your descendants will inherit the land of Canaan. Let's keep reading in Hebrews 6. Verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Notice the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have here the example of Abraham to teach us a larger lesson. Covenants confirm promises. Promises are guaranteed by oaths. 
we have been given the promise of salvation and life in Jesus Christ. And the oath, the covenant of salvation in Christ is not just a salvation from our sin in the past, but a salvation for glory in the future. And so how shall we have full assurance of hope until the end? By remembering God's promises, which he in grace and mercy and kindness to us has confirmed in covenant to us. So you know what the application then is. Of course, the application is to appreciate and understand perhaps more fully or deeply, the Lord's Supper as a promise that is confirmed by an oath, as a covenant. Why does God bother to make covenants with his people? To show us more convincingly, to show the heirs of the promise more more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose. He has promised and he cannot lie. He has sworn by himself and he cannot lie. I see his promise I see his oath, I believe in his promise, I believe in his oath, and I hope for the fulfillment of what he has covenanted to me in Jesus Christ. And so, why do we have the Lord's Supper? Why do we celebrate it? One of the many reasons is so that we might be shown more and more convincingly, week in and week out, God's promises, his oath, his covenant with us. God says, your sins are forgiven. And we, like Abraham in Genesis 15, say, but how shall I know? And God says, I've covenanted it to you. My promise and my oath in the blood of Jesus Christ guarantee to you and show you more convincingly, show you more convincingly that your faith may be strengthened and that your hope may be strengthened to know these things shall, shall certainly come to pass. And that's why we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes with hope and expectation and patient longing for the fulfillment of all that he has promised and and sworn by himself to us. And in this way, we have full assurance of hope until the end. The Lord says, see my promises, hold my promises, taste my promises, smell my promises, behold my promises, behold my covenant, partake of it. I swear to you by my own life, God says, your sins are forgiven. You have everlasting life in Jesus Christ and you will have glory forever and ever with me. Brothers and sisters, what a merciful and gracious and kind God we have to give us not just promises, but promises confirmed by oaths, which are covenants. The Lord's Supper is a hope booster every week because it points us to God's promises confirmed by oath until he comes. We feed on Christ by faith. We meditate on him. We remember him. And this is one more reminder to be actively participating in the sacrament by faith. Not just, it's not the eating of the bread and it's not the drinking of the wine that nourishes your soul. It's by faith looking beyond those things to what they point to, that your faith and your hope are nourished and strengthened and fortified. So you need to meditate on the Lord and believe on the Lord and hope in the Lord when you partake of the supper, and that will nourish your soul. So that when you see the tokens of the covenant, when you see this is my body and this is my blood, as you eat and drink, you say in your heart, as is he, so will I be. And how do I know this for certain? Because he has promised and sworn it by himself. 
And the Christian that leaves the church on the Lord's day and says, he has promised and sworn to me, he has promised and sworn to me, they go away fed. They go away having grown. They go away with once again the resurrected life of Jesus Christ flowing through the means of grace into his sheep. And hope springs anew. Brothers and sisters, in conclusion, Christian hope is confident expectation. We hope in the resurrection of Christ because that means we hope for our resurrection. God has promised it. We can hope for that promise. We can wait patiently for it. We exercise hope. We endure suffering and mature in hope, but we cannot lose it. Hope is in Christ and what he has done, and we may lose sight of it or memory of it or enjoyment of it, but praise God it is not lost. And praise God that his promises in which we believe and for which we hope are confirmed by oath in covenant to assure and reassure us of his love for us and the certainty that what he has promised, he will do. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope in Christ and hope for Christ and you will find him to be a tree of everlasting life and glory, whose brightness and beauty, whose majesty and might help us to overcome our anxieties and depressions in this life and bring us all to that life that he has provided for us beyond. As is he, so will I be. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you that you have provided for us an imperishable inheritance and an unchangeable promise and oath. We thank you that Jesus is risen from the dead. And we remember this every single first day of the week. He is risen just as he said we thank you that you have given us your word, you have given us your sacraments to remind us, to feed us, to replenish us, to restore us. You are so kind to us. Even when we say, but how shall we know? You patiently give us more and more convincing proofs and evidences and reasons to believe and to trust and to hope. Help us, we ask. Help us to grow in hope, to exercise hope, to practice hope. Help us to not lose sight of the key of promise. Help us, O oh Lord, to enjoy your covenant, to be strengthened by it. Help us, we ask, and we know that you will do this, for it is according to your will, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.